Hi, it's Dr. Janet Pope at hashtag ULAR2021 in beautiful Paris, France, or in the comfort of your living room, more likely. I'm going to talk about what if a patient with lupus, a woman, is doing well and wants to get pregnant. And I'm going to try to answer that by looking at some of the abstracts at this ULAR meeting. And I'm reporting for At Room now, and I, join, I invite you to join our other sessions as well. So I'll say I have a woman with SLE under good control. She's 30 years old. She's been in almost remission with her lupus and she's on belimumab. So the first question is, what do we do with the belimumab? Because we can't use it in pregnancy. It's contraindicated. So to answer that, poster 0107 looked at tapering belimumab in a single site study of patients with lupus who were doing well. And the patients who tapered compared to those who received standard of care not tapering were very similar, except for it looked like, in my opinion, patients on background hydroxychloroquine might have been more apt to taper. They found that 44% of patients over two years could taper their treatment. So I would say to my patient, if you're on belimumab, stay on your background hydroxychloroquine, let's taper belimumab and see if you flare. Then as she uh, contemplates further getting pregnancy, we want her to stay in a low disease state or remission. And the next question is, what do I follow during pregnancy? I leave her on hydroxychloroquine. I would probably add baby aspirin when she conceived. And poster 0103 actually tells me that complements can increase regularly in healthy people in the first trimester of pregnancy. And in fact, C3 should increase by about 28% and C4 by 11%. So when my patient gets pregnant, I will do her double-stranded DNA, row and law to look for whether I need to screen for fetal heart block. I will also know her antiphospholipid antibody status, and I will do her complements early on, urinalysis, CBC, and creatinine. I will know that her complements should be a little bit elevated in the first trimester. Why is that important? Because if complements go down, particularly C3, that is related to poor fetal outcome. So I can answer two questions for my patient having gone to the ULAR 2021. Please follow us at room now. Thank you. Hi, this is Paul Studenik from the Karolinska Institute of Stockholm, reporting for Rome now from the virtual EULA Congress 2021. I'm uh, talking with Dr. James Galloway uh, from King's College London on his study with the uh, number OP0126, titled Infections and Serious Infections in the Philgottinib Rheumatoid Arthritis Program. So um, prospects on safety in Philgottinib RA patients. So thank you, James, for taking the time being with us. Thank you very much for inviting me, Paul. Well, JAK inhibitors 
have been another milestone in the treatment of entarium uh, for inflammatory arthritis patients. And among the family of CHAK inhibitors, filgotinib is you know, preventionally inhibiting CHAK1. And it is, uh, of course, patient safety is one of the major points to be addressed in novel treatments. So what can you tell us concerning infections or the risk of infections from the analysis of the data? Yeah, so thanks. So, so we've looked at data from across the trial program from the filgotinib trials. So that, that includes the phase two trials and also the phase three. So there's three phase two trials and four phase three trials and also long-term extension data. We've, we've looked at infe infection rates overall. So this includes serious and non-serious infection rates and compared that between um, filgotinib at the two doses, 200 milligrams and 100 milligrams because of course the license for Fulgovnip has the, the dose range in it. We've compared that to the placebo arms, which has got the relatively short placebo comparator, but then longer comparator data for methotrexate comparison, adalimumab comparison, um, and, and also some data from open label extension. The headlines are that the infection rates with Fulgovnip were numerically slightly higher than placebo, but actually they were numerically very low. When they're compared to methotrexate and adalimumab, the confidence intervals all overlap, and so that the, the event rates are, are very reassuring. And we also did some work looking at event rates over time. Looks like you see, like we've seen with the other, pretty much not just JAK inhibition, but across the board with immune modulation in, in rheumatoid, you see this early increase in risk that then set, settles down over time. So if people are gonna have infections, look like the risk is greatest early on. Um, and then we also did, did some work to look at what predicted infection. So were there any characteristics of trial participants that predicted who was going to get infection? Quite a few things came out in the univariate analysis, which is sort of the, the usual suspects in terms of risk factors. But in the multivariate model, the, the one thing that stood out was a prior history of chronic lung disease uh, appeared to be the, the one thing that stood out. I, I should say that actually prior history of serious infection looked like it was getting very close as well. And I suspect that may have been missed just on a sample size effect because we had relatively small numbers who have got prior infection. So uh, from, from your feeling, um, how of, of all the things that we now know, how much uh, do we still don't know when it comes to improving, for instance, patient safety, when we decide or want to consider uh, treating this particular patient with glucodinib? Yeah, so I, I think th there's a couple of things, a couple of big gaps, I think, in, in our knowledge. One is we, we need to see real-world data because we know that clinical trials tend to recruit uh, a select cohort of people, people who tend to be slightly healthier and perhaps slightly lower risk. So when we, when we look at drug safety and pharmacovigilance, it's really important we get post-marketing pharmacovigilance data that builds our confidence, our strength, and, and our understanding about these drugs. The other really big question, though, is how do the risks of filgotinib compare to other, other drugs in the class within JAK inhibition? I, I think we have this question of, is JAK1, is a JAK1 preferential drug going to have an advantage over drugs that have other selectivities in the, in the class? And numerically, if you look at the numbers, it, it does look like safety data may separate out with Filgotinib looking slightly, based, slightly better in the safety profile. Um, but 
we don't have head-to-head data. And I, I think until we get head-to-head data, I think we need to be very cautious in making those sorts of inferences. Um, the numbers are very reassuring. And, and there's a, a linked abstract on Zoster as well. And I, I think, if anything, the Zoster rates are perhaps slightly more convincing. They may be slightly lower with Fulgotinib than with, um, than with the other JAK inhibitors. But I, I think time will tell. Well, good that you mentioned actually uh, Soster at, at the end, and even though it is linked to, to the poster that was also presented today, um, would you, so to say, uh, recommend, uh, independent of which class of check inhibitor to be used uh, to vaccinate, if possible, any patient before treatment? Yeah, so I, I think it, it is dependent on what you can get access to from the Zoster vaccine perspective. If you can access the, the subunit vaccine, the non-live vaccine, which has got very good efficacy data, um, and although it does look like it may have a slight, it's a slightly more immunogenic vaccine, it's got very potent adjuvant in it. And, and um, But I, I think if, if I had access to the subunit vaccine, then I'd recommend anyone over 50 going on to targeted immunosuppression should be offered that. And in, in the UK, that's certainly been our recommendation, but we haven't pu- published it yet because we don't have widespread access to that vaccine. And the live vaccine that is currently widely available in the UK, and I know in Europe, many countries have the, the similar situation. Um, we saw, for example, in the, um, in the oral study, so tofacitinib, they did some nested work. Kevin Winthrop presented this a couple of years ago, where they, they gave, um, it was in the oral standard trial, they gave a subgroup of people the, the live vaccine um, before starting on, on tofacitinib. And, and actually, it, it looked like um, people still develop Zoster despite that vaccine. We know even in immunocompetent people, the vaccine's efficacy is only in the 60s. It's only about 60% efficacious. So I think if your only access is to the, the live vaccine, I'm unsure about the evidence there. What I personally tend to do is, in the absence of access, accessing the subunit vaccine, I educate people about Zoster particularly people with a prior history of Zoster or people who you think are more vulnerable, I tend to give them a pack of um, valet cyclovir with instructions on when they would use that if they do develop symptoms and, and make sure they know how to handle it rather than pushing hard for vaccine, particularly with the live vaccine. Wonderful. So thank you for, for this uh, very uh, also clinical practical um, answer to that. And uh, just to let you know, uh, the, the, the poster uh, we were referring to is POS0092, if you want to have a closer look at that. And uh, with that, thank you so much for your time, James. Um, it was a pleasure having you. Thank um, you, Emma. Thank you all for watching. Uh, if you uh, would like to see more uh, and of the EULA experience and all reporters, uh, visit wrongnow.com. Hi, this is Dr. Eric Dine with Room Now coming at you from day two of EULAR. I'm going to talk about oral presentation 0138, looking at the feasibility of progressive anti-TNF tapering in axial spinal arthritis, patient in low disease activity. This is the spacing trial coming out of France. And the reason for doing it is really because patients will ask you about it. They are interested if they feel like their disease is well managed in decreasing the amount of um, medication that they require. There's cost of the medications, patients do not enjoy injecting themselves, the infectious risk and other risks of being on the medications. 
so this is something that I think comes up frequently in practice is the question of can I taper or space out the interval of my medication. There were 398 patients included. They all met ASAS criteria. They had all had radiographic exospinal arthritis. They had a BASI score of under four for at least six months and normal CRP to be included in the trial. They were randomized to an unchanged group that continued their current regimen versus spacing out their therapy. Uh, and they were analyzed via a non-inferiority study. Patients of all different types of TNF were included in the study and um, based on the TNF, the spacing um, algorithm was to increase the interval from the uh, general guidelines from, from the dosing. So for example, if you're on adalimumab, you would initially be on every 14 days at the start of the trial, and they would stepwise try to increase that interval to 21 days, 28 days, and up to 35 days. If you had a relapse, you would step back a group into a little bit more frequent interval. Of the, the almost 400 patients in the study, they had 91.5% follow-up, so excellent follow-up in, in the course of the study. The findings were encouraging. 83% of patients were able to increase the interval in the spacing group at month 12. And there were similar rates of flares as the unchanged group, and they showed non-inferiority with this approach. Patients that did have a flare or needed to step back into a higher interval, they um, had equivalent drug efficacy um, and were able to regain disease control when they went back on their initial dosing of the medication. Um, the, this is some initial data coming out of the study. So, so there's some more information I think still to come. They didn't show us any evidence of exactly how well spaced out the patients were at that month 12. Um, if they were able to get all the way up to the 35 days for adalimumab or if they were somewhere between the 14 and the 35. Um, it, it's also, you know, um, it, it's also going to be interesting to follow um, the activity scores. They, they didn't have any of that information um, quite available for us yet as to comparing uh, scores in the different groups at different time points. Um, I, I think it is something that's encouraging. I, I'd like to see this out longer than 12 months, um, but I think it is something that if a patient asks, I think it's something that's reasonable to try. It's important to remember this is part of a trial. So, um, uh, follow your, your patients closely. They were very closely monitored as they increased the intervals. Uh, so if they have any signs of, of increasing disease activity, you want to be able to recognize that and um, adjust to that uh, in, in a timely fashion. Um, but I think this is something that I will bring to my, my practice as, as a reasonable option for a patient that is in low disease activity with axial arthritis and is interesting in potentially tapering their TNF inhibitor uh, and increasing the, the dosing interval. That's all for now from Room Now. Check out roomnow.com. Uh, this is Dr. Eric Dine. I'll be with you for, for the remainder of the ULR uh, meeting with updates. Hi, I'm David Liu from Melbourne, Australia, reporting from Room Now for Eula 2021. And busy day, busy first full day at the conference. Uh, lots going on, especially in RA. Just want to tell you a bit about some of the abstracts in RAILD. I don't know about you, but for a long time, I think this was a disease which I certainly felt very vulnerable about. Patients who really do progress in it. Um, and really who do have escalating disease really get held back by it. And we know that it's a significant cause of morbidity and mortality in our RA patients, even in a contemporary situation. 
but what could we do about it? And we've known for a while that perhaps some therapies might favour improvement in this space. And we certainly saw abstracts about abatacept and about uh, tofacitinib um, in RAILD. And we all are conscious that controlling the RA, the RA is so important to controlling the RAILD. But what does the therapeutic, what do therapeutic avenues look like in the future? Um, are there other options? And the emergence of antifibrotics in, in um, IPF and in scleroderma IOD, we've seen have, um, have started to open up the idea that this might be a possibility. So um, what was really interesting at this meeting was looking at a sub-analysis of the inbuilt study, which looked at nintedinib, which is an antifibrotic, uh, looking at that in RAILD. And we'd seen broader rheumatological cohorts before, but we hadn't really seen anything specific for RAILD. Um, so what happened in this? Well, keeping in mind that when you're dealing with um, FVC in these patients, when you're dealing with lung volume, you're trying to deal, we're dealing with fibrosis and we're dealing with trying to stop irreversible damage, much in the same way that we see this in with erosions in RA. And what we saw in this is that after, the, after week 24, for the patients who are in this cohort, uh, the 50 odd patients in this cohort, we saw a divergence of ways to the point where at 52 weeks, we'd reached the minimum clinically um, important difference. Um, now, numerically, it doesn't sound like much, 110 mils doesn't sound like much, but um, A, firstly, uh, it is, um, as far as the scleroderma um, data is concerned, it definitely is an important amount of, of um, space. And the second most important thing is that it actually um, really represents a trajectory. There's a, there's a parting of the ways and really this represents something which can potentially stall uh, the fibrosis as opposed to letting it run. Now, is this gonna be the kind of thing that we run by itself and is it gonna work for everyone? No, no question. Um, we saw in this data that it, it, there was um, homo homogeneity in terms of the response across um, CRP levels, across steroids, um, but, we, but we're not going to necessarily see everyone respond. But what we will see is that some people will respond well, and it will really do enormous thing in, in terms of stopping them from dying from rheumatoid arthritis. And more than that, we're starting to see the idea of combination with other therapies. So taking our effective um, RA therapies and combining them with um, things like antifibrotics. This is something that I saw Ernest Troy ask a question about. Um, and then we had Toby Ma, who's um, uh, I think well known to many people for his work in, in CTD ILD and, and spoke about scleroderma ILD at this conference and start to map out where this future might sit. And hopefully this is a point where we're getting to be more and more sophisticated in the way that we treat RAILD. Do the simple things right, treat the RA right, and then plausibly on top of that, add antifibrotics. For more about ULI 2021 and all that's happening, as well as all in rheumatology, head on down to roomnow.com. Hi, this is Dr. Eric Dine with Room Now, checking in from day two of ULAR. We had an excellent session this morning looking at treatment options for 
lupus, uh, active lupus, nephritis, arthritis, and skin disease. Talked about a variety of, of new medications um, that can change the landscape of lupus treatment. I'm gonna talk about three medications today and the trials that were presented associated with them. The first trial I'm gonna talk about is oral presentation 0129, looking at belumumab after rituximab. Uh, studying whether it can reduce anti-double-stranded DNA, IgG, and prolong time to severe flare in lupus nephritis. In this study, they looked at administering bulimab after giving rituximab. So rituximab itself, um, obviously controversial for the treatment of lupus nephritis in that um, it's been something that's been used frequently, seems to have a good effect for many providers, but the real-world data in the lunar trial uh, had trouble showing uh, statistical significance. Um, they have noted that rising bath levels after rituximab has correlated with disease flares. So the idea of this study is to administer belumumab, which is anti-bath, um, to uh, try to prevent that from happening and keep double-stranded DNA low in patients with lupus nephritis following their rituximab infusions. So this, this study looked at 52 patients that were recruited all patients in the study received rituximab infusions twice, um, and then four to eight weeks after their first rituximab, they were randomized to receive either belumumab or placebo plus standard of care for both of them. There's no restrictions on the patients coming into the study on immunosuppression or, or the amount of prednisone they were on. Um, they seem to be at about um, 13 or 14 milligrams on average of prednisone in the study. Patients came from across England. There are 16 centers in England that were part of this trial. 81% female as uh, per the, the lupus demographics, uh, only about 12% of black ethnicity in the trial. Um, the primary endpoint was looking at anti-double-stranded DNA antibodies, IgG, uh, and they met that at all time points, including the primary endpoint, which was at 52 weeks. Uh, they also noted that there was an increase in time to the first severe lupus nephritis flare of BILAC A. Uh, this was statistically significant. Um, which was you know, a very impressive finding given the low number of patients in the study. Uh, there's a trend towards um, uh, increased time until first moderate or severe by like A or, or to B flare. Uh, so this was a trend towards significance, but didn't quite make it. Um, and both arms had, were able to decrease prednisone over the course of the study, but there's no difference between those groups. Adverse events were also similar between the two groups. Uh, so I, I think this is, um, a very interesting study of pairing rituximab with bulimumab uh, as a treatment for refractory lupus nephritis. Uh, I think it's something that makes a lot of um, biologic plausibility uh, from a mechanistic standpoint. Uh, and I think it's something that we need some more data looking at rituximab as well as rituximab bulimumab pairing for this possible disease. Next, I'm gonna talk about um, anaphrolimab, uh, which is our human monoclonal antibody to type one interferon. Dr. Merrill talked about this in oral presentation 0131. Uh, and they looked at rash and arthritis effects of anaphrolimab. Uh, these were pooled data from the two phase three trials, TULIP1 and TULIP2. Uh, and she showed that there was improvement of rash and arthritis on anaphrolimab. And I thought the interesting uh, finding here that, that was discussed in the TULIP trials were that it was the patients with high interferon um, signatures that particularly responded. So showing that anaphrolimab could be a good agent at interfering um, interferon and, um, and leading to benefit of 
uh, musculoskeletal and cutaneous disease for lupus, particularly in that subset of patients that have high interferon. Finally, I'm gonna talk about a study of a phase two trial. This is ibiramide um, that uh, Dr. Worth talked about in presentation 0132. Um, ibiramide is a high affinity uh, cerebron ligand that promotes protosomal degradation of Icarus and Ilos. Those are transcription factors of immune cell development and homeostasis that are linked to SLA. Ibiramide has been shown to reduce the activity of B cells and type one interferon pathways. Uh, they tested three doses of ibiramide at 0.15 milligrams, uh, 0.3 and 0.45 milligrams daily dosing of ibiramide. Uh, and they tested that versus placebo. Uh, skipping ahead to the results, looking at the class A50 scores, uh, there's no difference um, between the doses of the ibiramide between the low, moderate, and, and the high doses. Um, but they did show comparing that the high doses of ibiramide versus placebo that there was a um, statistical significance in subacute cutaneous lupus and chronic cutaneous lupus. This was not seen for acute cutaneous lupus, but there was findings as early as week four with continuous improvement to the end of the study at week 24. So again, this is another encouraging finding that this could be another potential avenue or pathway in the treatment of lupus. So in summary, I think there's three uh, excellent presentations that talked about these three different medications I'm looking forward to seeing more studies and more to come out about each of them as potential new treatments for us. Thank you very much. This is Eric Dine from Room Now. I'll be here throughout ULR meeting, checking back in with updates. Thank you. Hi, this is Paul Surny from the Kalinske Institute in Stockholm reporting for Room Now from the virtual EULA Congress 2021. So today we had a wonderful uh, EULA morning session on treatments in psoriatic arthritis. And in this regard, I would like to highlight actually three abstracts. Uh, Laura Coates presented the 2021 CRAPA treatment recommendations in psoriatic arthritis with the number OP0229. Uh, Atul Dafta brought sub-analysis concerning axial involvement of psoriatic arthritis patients uh, using data from uh, the select PSAR uh, 1 and 2 study uh, with OP0233. And uh, Philip Mee shared with us 16-week data on Ducravacitinib um, with the number OP0227. So uh, CRAPA, it's the third edition, uh, a huge collaborative effort, definitely. And uh, the main uh, new points here, it, it, it outlines an overarching principle uh, that putting all these recommendations in the context of shared decision-making. And uh, furthermore, uh, into an integrated management plan, taking not only now the classical related uh, conditions like uveitis, uh, into account, but the whole spectrum of uh, comorbidities uh, that is observed and is uh, increasingly more apparent uh, over the last years. Um, also, reproductive health has been emphasized as one part to integrate in that. And it, the, the, since the therapeutic amitarium has extended to the benefits of the patient, um, uh, this is, of course, also very much needed 
due to the heterogeneity and the features of SAR that may occur during the course of uh, this chronic disease. Uh, coming uh, to Uparacipinib and uh, the abstract of Atuldefta, um, Uparacipinib, a CHAC inhibitor, particularly CHAC1, um, is uh, here the data of select PSAR 1 and 2 has been used. And the specific question was actually, how about patients with axial involvement um, and uh, efficacy and safety? Uparacipinib is efficacy. Uh, 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 has been proven efficacy in um, psoriatic arthritis as well as ankylosing spondylitis. And here, uh, the 12 week and 24 weeks time point has been taken into account with the uh, uh, 50 milligram doses and the 30 milligram doses. And uh, about 30% in both trials uh, showed axial involvement and what was interesting to see is that uh, people with axial involvement had higher tender joint counts, they had more dactylitis, more enthesitis, and also longer morning stiffness, uh, duration of morning stiffness. So uh, good news uh, that relevant outcome domains uh, actually uh, all showed uh, beneficial improvement in comparison to placebo at week uh, 12 and 24. And uh, what is to highlight maybe is the BASDI uh, that, uh, uh, that decreased uh, uh, with a mean of about uh, 2.6 uh, uh, after 24 weeks. That also when you exclude question three, which is about the peripheral joint pain, uh, you see a similar um, mean change in uh, this score. So these positive results could also be replicated in the ASTAS and uh, I think the ASTAS clinical important improvement rates were quite uh, nice with uh, 60% in the active group and 20% placebo. And this strengthens, of course, the evidence uh, for upadazipinib in psoriatic arthritis patients with uh, also axial involvement. Uh, so now coming to the new kit on the block, dupravacitinib, uh, uh, which is a TIC2 inhibitor, so this drug binds the TIC2 regulatory domain and via that then inhibits cytokine pathways. Um, it has already been shown efficacy in um, moderate to severe plaque psoriasis. And uh, this trial uh, presented by uh, Philip Meese showed uh, the week 16 uh, results uh, with the psoriatic arthritis patients and musculoskeletal symptoms. And these uh, patients were allowed to um, fail up to one TNF inhibitor as well, uh, but uh, we had active disease and um, at least uh, uh, fail uh, one conventional synthetic demut and uh, a six milligram and a 12 milligram dose uh, uh, in, in addition to the placebo arm was tested here. The primary outcome ACR20 response was met um, with about uh, uh, 50 to 60% uh, responses and 30% in the placebo arm, but uh, more of interest of course uh, with ACR50 uh, is 24% in uh, the lower dose six milligram and 32% in the 12 milligram arm. Uh, in placebo, this was uh, 10 
5%. Uh, but uh, composite cores are uh, in particular important besides single uh, indexes like patient global uh, that all decreased. The DAPSA and the PASTAs uh, could re reproduce uh, these nice results that also we 16 with uh, 23 units of mean change uh, in DAPSA and two units in the PASTAs. Uh, the minimal disease activity uh, was also reached in 23%. Uh, uh, concerning uh, uh, other features like enthesitis um, uh, score of zero in the lead enthesitis and the spark uh, was uh, observed in about 50% of patients of the active arm. Uh, safety is of course also uh, always of high importance and uh, there were no serious adverse events uh, in the trial period. Also no opportunistic infections or herpes zoster. Um, and uh, by that, I would like to close that uh, these trials highlight these growing basket of options, uh, what to choose uh, for treating our psoriatic arthritis patients. And this, this great benefit uh, means that uh, the personal situation of the patient with all the possible associated features needs to be taken into account for the ideal uh, treatment decisions. By that, thank you very much for watching. Uh, further and Troy Euler, tune in for more content on Room Now. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter using at Studio Hello, welcome to Room Now. I'm Janet Pope, a rheumatologist in Canada. And for those at ULAR 2021, bonjour, ça va? Uh, since ULAR was supposed to be in Paris, France. So I have a clinical question that I'm going to try to answer from some data at ULAR 2021. So my question is when I have a patient with systemic sclerosis, what does a limited cutaneous systemic sclerosis patient look like if they are SCL70 positive? I'm sure you're aware that SCL70 is also called topo or topoisomerase 1, and that it is strongly related to interstitial lung disease. So poster 0318 used a large group of U-star ULAR patients with systemic sclerosis to try to answer this question. So they wanted to look at organ involvement and changes between or differences between limited scleroderma with and without SCL70 and comparing diffuse to limited patients with SCL70. So they used a total of 1,052 patients with about seven to eight years of follow-up. They found that the limited patients who were SCL70 positive had shorter time from Raynaud's to the diagnosis of systemic sclerosis. Uh, we do know that patients with usual limited cutaneous systemic sclerosis usually have about eight or 10 years of Raynaud's before they get their first non-Raynaud symptom of their scleroderma, whereas in the diffuse patients, they often have about a year um, or get the first symptoms of systemic sclerosis at the same time as their Raynaud's. So shortening the difference kind of makes sense. They also compared SCL70 positive limited patients with scleroderma to anti-cardiolipin antibody. 
No surprise, they found more lung involvement if you were SCL70 positive and had limited scleroderma compared to centromere positive limited scleroderma. But here's the rub. When they compared SCL70 positive limited patients to SCL70 positive diffuse cutaneous subset patients, they found two interesting things. They found that the frequency of interstitial lung disease was absolutely the same in those two subsets. That might not surprise you because SCL70 is a risk for ILD. Here's where the take home message is. They found that if you had diffuse cutaneous systemic sclerosis, SCL70 positive, you were far more likely to progress your interstitial lung disease than if you were a limited patient with SCL70. Same frequency of lung disease, one has a poorer prognosis. And in fact, that correlated with mortality. Diffuse had higher mortality, SCL70 positive than the limited patients. This, however, shouldn't surprise me because a few years ago, we did a study with one of my trainees in our Canadian Scleroderma Research Group database, and we looked at a couple thousand patients who had had PFTs annually over three years. SCL70, no surprise, was related to restrictive lung disease, interstitial lung disease, restrictive pattern, but progression of ILD was far more related over the three years to having bad esophagus, esophagitis, so having need for a dilatation, aspiration, and choking. And if you had two or three of those things of need for a dilatation, choking, or even waking up with aspiration in your mouth, you are far more apt to progress your lung. Take home message, make sure our patients don't with ILD or at risk for ILD and scleroderma, don't eat after supper time, they raise the head of the bed and treat reflux very aggressively because it makes a difference for morbidity and mortality. Thank you and stay tuned for more.